0: Welcome to the not podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuklear Bomb. And welcome to the 182nd episode of the not titled Split Saber, an analysis of a storm of swords, Tyrion 4, in which Tywin keeps giving Tyrion the shit work. Rebuilding the gates, sitting around while Tywin villain monologues, murdering singers, Okay, well, that last one's all Tyrion. Let's be fair. Let's be fair to Tywin Lannister, I say, for the first and last time.
1: Yeah, Tyrion, you accomplished one thing completely on your own this episode, and I'm really proud of you for that.
0: I'm so proud of you. We're going we're gonna to put it up on the fridge for everyone to see it. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all published books, the five novels, three Dunkin' Egg novellas, the histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as both Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our friend Lo the Lynx, who asks I decided to finally upgrade my Patreon membership to Sworn Sword level, so I figured I'd send you all a question. I recently read that Ryan Condall's favorite A Song of Ice and Fire book is A Feast for Crows. A very good opinion, since it's objectively the best book. So I wanted to ask you, which A Feast for Crows chapter is your favorite, and which one do you most look forward to covering on the podcast, if those are different? So what do you think, Manu? What, of, what in Feast for Crows do you love the most, and, or also, what are you most looking forward to covering?
1: Well first, Lo, thank you for upgrading your Patreon membership, that's really appreciated. And thank you for this great question. Feast is right there with Dance for me as my favorite book as well. I usually say Dance, but sometimes it just feels good to proclaim Feast as the one true king. But it is also a good question because unlike Storm and even Dance, I don't have chapter numbers that leap out to me because A Feast for Crows is all about the vibe to me. It's smaller events, precursors to Fireworks Factory we'll see in Dance and beyond. So it's really just picking a matter, or it's just a matter of picking what moments that really hit. I'll take your second question first. The chapter I look forward most to cover is Jamie 6, because as a Jamie Lannister partisan, I most want to discuss the virtuous knight's most noble of deeds, and Edmure Tully's kids over the walls of Riverrun. Never was there a truer knight. My favorite chapter, however, is one of the embarrassment of riches that are the Brienne chapters. Could be Brienne 4 and the low-key tragedy of Nimble Dick, Brienne 5 has the broken man speech, not to mention Stoneheart in the last but I think I'll go with Brienne 7. It's First, it's the return of Gendry, the namesake for one of my cats. Brienne mistaking him for Renly with her My lord? is a moment I adore, one I wish the throne show did because I can see some resemblance between Joe Dempsey, Joe Dempsey and Gethin Anthony. But the chapter is, all, is some great action horror, starting with the trail of hanging corpses and ending with a battle with monsters in the rain, Rorge posing as the hound. No chance and no choice. What about you, sir?
0: Like you say, Feast is is more about the vibes. It's got, it's got this very specific tone, and I think accidentally it ended up being the most thematically focused of any book in the series, because it's all about death and decay, and most storylines have this one important person who died recently, and everyone's just kind of dealing with the fallout from that, dealing very poorly for the most part. In terms of specific storylines, yeah, I think there's a case to be made that the Brienne chapters in Feast is the best writing in the story, full stop. For me, it's, it's that or Theon's chapters in Dance. Like, those are one of those. They're one and two. And it, they, they just keep getting better as they go. Uh, I love all the ones you mentioned. I, would, I also love Brienne 6, the one where she goes to the Quiet Isle. I'm really looking forward to talking about that one because there's that great little bit with the man that is almost certainly Sandor as the gravedigger and that incredible speech at the end of that chapter where Brienne is talking about her father and the struggle to be a proper daughter and a proper son to him, kind of both and kind of neither. It's so so well written, so emotional, lets you know so much about her. My favorite part of Feast, though, this will surprise absolutely nobody, is the King's Moot. The, the two chapters that go uh, one right after the other, the Iron Captain and the Drowned Man, Victorian and Aeron respectively. I, I love those chapters for so many reasons. Number one, of course, is which that's the intro to Euron, one of my favorite characters in the story, and uh, a more effective introduction I cannot imagine. Everything about the way he's described, all of his dialogue, all his big speeches are great. I love the Kingsman itself as this perfect little microcosm of the story where there's this civil conflict about who's going to lead us and everyone makes increasingly terrible decisions until the worst person ever wins. Wonderful just to see the the Iron Islands democracy in action. And I love, I love both of those POVs. I love Aaron's kind of sad, haunted POV on Euron who abused him pretty terribly, it seems like, and no one cares. And Aaron has been kind of using religion as his way to deal with that, and then he watches it all fall apart. And I really love Victorian's POV for the same reason many people do, of just the great dark comedy of this guy who just does not understand the importance of anything that happens in his own story. And the reader kind of gets to, but you just watch everything just go slightly over his head. And that's, that's just delightful. But yeah, Feast as a whole is, is fascinating stuff. I think I, I get why it jarred people coming off Storm, especially since a lot of familiar characters are missing. Like right up front, you get POVs from unfamiliar characters or characters who haven't been POVs before, like several in a row. But I think on its own terms, it's, it's a remarkable piece of work. And it's, it's really emotional and well-written. So I'm looking forward to talking about all of it with you, sir. Same. So thanks again to Lo for the question. If you want to ask us questions here on the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or a higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash ASOIIF, where our patrons also get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits besides. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords Tyrion IV, so let's jump into the synopsis. Tyrion and Bronn are wandering around the Kingsgate neighborhood. Or rather, what's left of the place after Tyrion got done setting the river on fire. Despite the destruction, people are starting to return to the area. And, shockingly, they don't seem to like Tyrion very much. Tyrion says they didn't get the message he sent by blowing everything up, and tells Bronn that if they start rebuilding their homes, to tear them down. I can't imagine why they don't like you, buddy. Tyrion resigns himself to the task of fixing everything he broke. This was supposed to be his uncle Kevon's project, but he's not exactly on his A-game after hearing that his son Willem was murdered by the Karstarks. Not only that, but Willem's twin Martin is still Robb's captive, and Kevon's eldest son Lancel is still recovering from that battle wound that Cersei only made worse. Kevon is, understandably, breaking down, and so Tywin has to do his least favorite thing in the world, rely on Tyrion but Tyrion still doesn't know how the hell he's supposed to pay for this, especially with Littlefinger having conveniently taken off for the veil. Or so he says. The trebuchets from the battle are still sitting and gathering dust. Now they've become playgrounds for the local kids. Tyrion is concerned at first that they're going to hurt themselves and wants to post some gold cloaks, but then one of the brats throws some literal shit at him, and Tyrion decides, nah, fuck them kids. Why is our hero in such a bad mood? Oh, right, child bride. Everyone seems to know that Tyrion has refused to consummate his marriage. Tyrion doesn't know who spilled the beans, what with the castle overflowing with spies for Varys, and Cersei, and Littlefinger, and everyone else. And anyway, it doesn't really matter. Everyone knows, Tyrion thinks, and it feels like even the horses are laughing at him. To be fair, horses are jerks. Apologies to Eliana. Actually, never mind. I take that <laughs> apology back. Horses are jerks. Sansa isn't laughing, though. She's miserable and Tyrion knows he can't help because he's the source of her misery. He can't even sleep in the buff like he used to, because as good as Sansa is at playing the role of dutiful wife, she can't hide the disgust in her eyes when she looks at his naked body. For Tyrion, well, it's the opposite. Even though he's ordered Sansa to wear a sleeping shift to bed, he wants her. Sure, he'd quite like that large family castle of hers as well, but he also wants intimacy with her, a true marriage. But Tyrion knows he's about as likely to get that as he is to grow taller. Hey, it feels like we're leaving someone out here. What's up with Shay? Well, the night before the wedding, Tyrion put out a booty call through Varys, and they met in the eunuch's bachelor pad. Shay was pulling off Tyrion's clothes when, for once, he stopped her. He broke the news about Sansa, but Shay had already heard the hot gossip and could not care less. Far as she's concerned, Tyrion might make a baby with Sansa, but his dick will always lead him back to Shay. Tyrion wished Shea would object a little, but once again, he knows he's lying to himself. Back in the present, Tyrion and Bronn make their way down a street charmingly named Muddy Way. Tyrion tosses some coins down to the various gangs of starving orphans, but he doesn't even know if it'll do them any good. Inflation is still just that bad in King's Landing, despite the Tyrells flooding the markets with food. What's Tyrion even doing here? Gradually, we find out, as Bron leads the way through the streets at the foot of Visenya's hill. Tyrion glancing back to see if they're being followed. Bronn points out a dive bar and stands guard as Tyrion steps inside, bracing himself to get mugged at every step. I guess Matt Smith didn't really clean up the city after all. The bar's a real dump, but at least they're expecting Tyrion. The owner points him to the back room, where Simon Silvertongue is waiting for him. You remember him? Well, no one would blame you if you didn't. He's Shay's singer, the one Tyrion threatened back in Clash of Kings to keep Shay safe. Simon immediately screws up by calling Tyrion the Hand, which he no longer is, but gee, thanks for reminding him. Simon comes up with a bunch more insincere compliments, having heard about the wedding from My Sweet Lady Shay. Tyrion points out that Shay is no lady, and also, keep her name out of your mouth. Unfortunately for Tyrion, Simon doesn't scare as easily as last time. Maybe Tyrion should have made good on those previous threats, he thinks. It's Tyrion's turn to pay insincere compliments, as he calls Simon a very gifted singer. Maybe it's time you went on tour, preferably on another continent. Oh look, some cash miraculously appeared. Maybe you should take that with you. Simon points out that Tyrion has never even heard him sing. Take a listen to his latest hit. He rode through the streets of the city, and down from his hill on high, o'er oh, the winds and the steps and the cobbles, he rode to a woman's sigh. For she was his secret treasure, and she was his shame and his bliss, and a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. Tyrion tells both Simon and, more importantly, me to shut the fuck up. Simon says other people might like his song better. Maybe Cersei? Better yet. Maybe Tywin? Tyrion says they're not generous with their gold. Well, that much at least is true, and that Simon could make more by staying silent. Unfortunately, Simon's price isn't money. Cersei is going all out for Joffrey's wedding, hiring every juggler and jester and dancing bear in town. Well, I guess the bears aren't getting paid. No wonder they're always so angry in this story. Anyway, Simon has somehow been denied the gig. He knows he could do better than those other guys. Just give him a chance. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. Simon, having never learned to quit while he's ahead, tells Tyrion that he will happily sing his old songs at the wedding. But if he's left out, well, he'll just have to try out that new song all over town. That's why they call him Simon's silver tongue, and not Simon's subtle tongue. Tyrion links back up with Bronn, who wonders when he's taking Simon to find a ship across the narrow sea as planned. You're not, Tyrion replies. Tell Simon that one of the other singers dropped out, and he has to come with you to get fancy new clothes, and then murder the smug motherfucker. Braun is not worried about disposing of the body. Lots of pot shops in town where the customers don't ask questions about the meat. Alright everyone, check your bingo cards for cannibalism, we got it in this chapter. All Tyrion wants to do now is take a bath, scrub this day off himself. Naturally, the gods won't let him. The gods or Lord Tywin. Same difference, really. Pod informs Tyrion that he's been summoned to the Tower of the Hand. Tyrion takes his patricidal rage out on the poor kid for a while, before heading off to face down his father. Tywin is busy crafting a new cosplay outfit, and decides to show off to Tyrion everything he can't have. It's a sword. A beautiful sword. Shimmering black and red in the sunlight. Tywin's sick of hearing about Stannis' sword Lightbringer, probably almost as sick as Stannis, judging from what he says about it in the next Davos chapter, so Tywin has decided that it's time Joffrey had his own big damn hero sword. Tyrion points out that Joffrey is not at all prepared to handle a big damn hero sword, but then again, the blade is lighter than Tyrion expected. And no wonder, it's Valyrian steel. Tyrion knows what that means to Tywin. The Lannisters have lacked a Valyrian steel sword of their own ever since one of the Kings of the Rock took it back to Valyria and lost it there. There's one in every family. Uncle Garion went after it and never came back. Tywin has tried to buy a Valyrian steel sword on Westerosi eBay, but he got turned down every time. Tyrion wondered where his father found the steel itself, since they aren't exactly making more in Valyria these days. Yeah, good question, Tyrion. Who do we know that brought a Valyrian sword to King's Landing? Oh, right. Tywin, you fucker. Tyrion notes that the sword has some weird colors going on. Overlapping ripples of gray and red, like a candy cane that can kill you. How did Tabo Mott pull that off? Well, he honestly doesn't know. Tywin had asked for crimson swords to fit Lannister colors, but the steel itself seemed to resist. The color kept darkening, as if the blade was drinking the sun. That's so metal. Literally. Mott asks if he should keep trying, but Tywin says it'll do, and Tyrion goes further than that. He thinks it looks really fucking cool. There's no other sword like this, after all. Tywin gets to do his favorite thing, tell Tyrion he's wrong. There is one more sword like this. It's right over here. Tyrion picks up his dad's other penis substitute, a longer and thicker one. Tyrion's never been into swords, but even as an amateur he can tell that this sword is basically flawless. It is meant for my son, Tywin says, not specifying which, because he doesn't have to. Tyrion's not surprised by that. He's just curious whether Jaime will live long enough to appreciate it. Live? Live? Yes, appreciate the sword, not so much. Tywin tells Mott that he did real good, and he'll be paid by the guy Tywin hired to do things like pay people. Tywin himself has way too much money to sully himself by touching it. When Mott leaves, Tyrion returns to his favorite topic. Dad screwing him over yet again. Where's my big shiny sword? I don't even get a dagger? Tywin tells him to go hunting for a dagger in Robert's armory, winking frantically to the audience the entire time. But Tywin has other things to worry about like Tyrion reporting on what he found down by the water. Mud and corpses, says Tyrion, and it's going to take more money than we have to make it any other way. Too bad, Tywin says, because finding money is your job now. Tyrion points out that the crown is still in the red, to put it mildly. They haven't even paid the alchemists for the wildfire yet, nor the smiths who made Tyrion's big battle-winning chain. And Cersei wants to put them even deeper into debt now to pay for Joffrey's ridiculous fuck-you wedding. Tywin shoots back that they need to show off to the realm how much money he has, but when Tyrion suggests that Tywin use that money to pay for the ridiculous fuck you wedding, Tywin responds, well, fuck you. Why should he pay? Littlefinger was raking in the money. Yeah, well, not as fast as he was spending it, says Tyrion. Maybe Tywin could forgive the crown's debt to House Lannister? Tywin pouts for a while at that and threatens to fire Tyrion, before changing the topic to something even less pleasant. Tyrion's marriage to Sansa. Specifically, the sex. More specifically, the lack of sex. What's Tyrion waiting for? Tyrion doesn't think that's any of Dad's business, and more to the point, Sansa's is a child. Tywin blows right past that, and reminds Tyrion that she's the key to Winterfell, once her brother is dead. Wait, what was that, Tywin? Can could we, could we get that red back? Nope. Tyrion is desperately changing the subject to Cersei's wedding to Willis Tyrrell, which, it turns out, has been cancelled before it even went public. The Tyrells turned Cersei down, and suddenly, Tyrion's day is improving. Olenna thinks Cersei is too old, as we all know from the show, and Tywin is in full wedding, what wedding, mode about this. Yeah, that seems healthy. Then Tyrion's best friend Maester Pycelle walks in, sees Tyrion, and tries to set him on fire with his mind. That having failed, the beardless wonder tells Tywin they've had a letter from Castle Black. Remember that place? Bowen Marsh has written to say that they fear L.C. Mormont has been slain with all his strength. Well, not yet. Give it literally one more chapter. The Watch reports that the Wildlings are on the move in vast numbers, but Tywin knows that's impossible. The lands beyond the Wall cannot support vast numbers. How does he know that? He just does, that's how. Stop asking reasonable questions, or he will drown your family in their own blood. Tyrion, who actually knew and liked L.C. Mormont asks if he's really most sincerely dead. Pycelle doesn't know, but he does know that none of Mormont's men have made it back. Bowen Marsh is begging for help from all the five kings. Whoops. Tywin gets a Stannis-sized stick of his ass about that, and tells Pycelle to tell Marsh that there's only one king in Westeros, and the rest are traitors, pretenders, or, in Renly's case, dead. As for the reinforcements that Marsh is asking for... Well, that depends on who they choose for Mormont's replacement. Why not Jano Slint? Tyrion can think of many, many reasons why not, but they don't matter to Tywin. As for Pycelle, well, all the Lannister lickspittles who hate Tyrion get along. I think they have a group chat going. Tyrion can only wish he had sent Jano Slint to a watery grave along with his child-killing crony Deem. At least, Tyrion thinks, he hasn't made that same mistake with Simon Silvertongue. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion Four. What did you make of this one, Manu?
1: When someone asks me what my favorite A Song of Ice and Fire chapter is, there's a whole litany of options that flood to mind. Cat 4 in A Game of Thrones, Bran and Cat 7 in A Clash of Kings, Sam 1 and Jamie 5, all the Brienne chapters we talked about up top. But when asked for my least favorite chapter, it's a struggle. Mostly because I love all chapters at some level, or at least understand their value, it's just that nothing jumps to mind except the Tyrion-Simon Silvertongue chapter. It serves a purpose, takes care of a loose narrative thread, and adds some thematic heft to the importance of stories and songs. But ultimately, that whole branch of story is a bore. Simon himself one of the least interesting of the story's minor villains, especially coming off a chapter full of brave companions, Freys, Boltons, and Kyburn. Thankfully, that isn't the entire chapter. The look at King's Landing following the Battle of the Blackwater has value, and Tywin showing off his newly found Valyrian steel is also fun to dig into. So it's not all a slog by any means, but man, I just really dislike that Simon Silvertongue.
0: Yeah, this is probably my least favorite chapter in Act 2 of A Storm of Swords, so everything between Drakkaris and the Red Wedding, this is probably my least favorite. You can really feel the lack of momentum in King's Landing, especially compared to what's happening elsewhere. As I've said before, this is a product of the POV structure. In both Book 1 and Book 2, our major POV was the Hand of the King, operating in King's Landing, Ned in Book 1, Tyrion in Book 2. In both cases, they had the most chapters in the book, and they were in the driver's seat of the narrative. They were on the rise, and by the time the books ended, both had fallen. Albeit more permanently for good old dead Ned who lost his head. In A Storm of Swords, the Hand of the King, who is driving the plot forward, is Tywin who is not a POV, and really can't be, or the Red Wedding would get spoiled. The result is that all the important things happening in King's Landing right now are implied, rather than shown. That can sometimes work, as with the behind-the-scenes stuff going on with Sansa's marriage, I think that is interesting, but after a while it gets frustrating. Then again, we do need a relatively chill chapter in between Jamie 4 and Samwell II, which are both so harrowing they might lose their power if you put them right together. We might get numb to the effect. We need a breather. And as you say, there is definitely still some quality material here, especially when Tyrion meets up with Big Daddy Tywin. That dysfunctional relationship is the heart of Tyrion's story in this book, and so much of the groundwork for what's to come is being laid here. Which is part of why the Tyrion chapters in Act 3 of A Storm of Swords work so well. The Purple Wedding, Tyrion's trial, him killing Tywin and shay it all
1: builds on what came before. As Tyrion and Braun make their way to the wine sink that has Simon, they get a good look at King's Landing following the battle. The damage done to the mud in Gates, the burned quays, and the three whores, trebuchets now sitting idle in the market square. It honestly feels like a feast for crows writ small. We had a battle in this one city, and now we see the devastation that remains, and the broken pieces that need to be reassembled. The story in Feast zooms this out to every battle in every city, an entire countryside burnt to the ground and the efforts made to rebuild. But just as the crows come to make their feast, the living return after desolation. They come back quicker than rats, speaking to the vermin that are the first to return and herald the return of habitable day-to-day life. In the wake of battle, life finds a way. Fishmongers line the city walls, the market bustles with the sale of overpriced food, and kids play on the three whores like it's a jungle gym. People are resilient and will claw back to any normalcy they can grasp. Tyrion also notes the overpriced foods. This is natural, inflation during wartime, despite the massive amounts that Tyrells are bringing into the city. That isn't to say that people have forgotten what was done to them. Nothing but cold hard looks for Tyrion, the new master of coin, as he trots through the very parts of the city he torched to defend against Stannis. The kids on the trebuchets hurl manure at him, and Tyrion fears if not for the presence of Braun, they'd pull him from his horse and tear him limb for limb, for limb like they did Preston Greenfield during the bread riots. Braun offers to kill them all, which, how kind of you, Sir Bronn of the Blackwater, but his line... Once they're dead, they don't come back, is a nice strip of irony for the events unfolding north of the Wall. Tyrion does acknowledge his own complicity at the state of things, noting he was responsible for burning it down, only makes sense for him to be in charge of the reconstruction. He broke it, he bought it, which makes me think of season 8 thrones and Tyrion becoming Bran's hand at the end. I'm not sure if I take that as predictive of A Dream of Spring, but the idea that Tyrion has responsibility to help rebuild a country he helped tear apart is an appealing reading of the show's ending. Something like what we see in this chapter is, again, that story, writ small
0: Ah, writ small He said it. He said the thing. And yeah, that line about how Tyrion burned most of this and it's only just he helped rebuild it, that stands out very strongly in the wake of season eight. It's like the Battle of the Blackwater was a dress rehearsal for Danny's homecoming. Which could fit, because I think Stannis exists in part to show us what Danny might look like from the outside, as a non-point-of-view character. There's the great irony that during the Blackwater, Tyrion was defending the city against the return of the king, but when he comes back to Westeros, he will be the one on the outside, helping Danny burn her way in. What changes in the interim? Tyrion faces total alienation from both his family and society at large, which we are already seeing happen here. The people hate Tyrion for tearing this district apart, and while he can say they would have suffered worse if Stannis' men sacked the city, it's always hard to hold up a hypothetical against what actually happened. Moreover, Tyrion isn't doing himself any favors. He's terrible at PR, never taking any steps to improve his own brand. When Bronn, being Bronn, suggests they just massacre the neighborhood and be done with it, Tyrion's objection isn't moral, but practical. Others will come in their place. Ties right into what you were saying about the echo of what's going on north of the wall. The dead don't come back, but others take their place? It demonstrates how the magical and political plots are working on the same merciless logic. It's all about control, whether you're tearing down people's homes or turning them into your zombie slaves. Tyrion acts like he's being more reasonable than Bronn, but his argument doesn't stand up to scrutiny. He says they can't let people rebuild because the war isn't over yet. But really, what danger is King's Landing specifically in right now? Stannis doesn't have nearly enough men to mount another assault. Rob is on the other side of the continent, and the Ironborn are even further away. People could probably get away with rebuilding here, but Tyrion won't let them. And even when he does have good instincts, they don't last. I love the bit where he's concerned about the safety of the kids playing on the trebuchets until they start throwing shit at him. And that's Tyrion's arc in a nutshell, right? He's got that sympathy for cripples, bastards, and broken things, something lacking in Tywin and Cersei, and especially Joffrey. But as soon as he's rejected, Tyrion goes hard in the opposite direction. Not only does he abandon his concern for public safety, but he declares that they should instead let the poxy brats splatter on the cobbles like overripe melons. Which is such over-the-top supervillainy, you could drop it into one of Cersei's drinking sessions without changing a word. It's the kind of thing Aemond Targaryen might say on House of the Dragon. Tyrion wants a little bloody gratitude, as he told his father, emphasis on the bloody. When he doesn't get it, he indulges in resentment, giving up on the good deeds he wanted gratitude for in the first place. Speaking of Tywin, Tyrion's scorn for humanity writ large always comes back to his dysfunctional relationship with his father. As he says later in the chapter, Tywin never summons him just to share a meal, spend some time together. After all, Tywin is the reason Tyrion's down here, and this feels like shit work even before the kids on the trebuchets make that literal. All the imagery surrounding the mudgate is designed to make you think of shit, like Tyrion's been sent to wipe the city's asshole. It's just like when Tywin gave him charge of all the drains and cisterns at Casterly Rock. This wasn't even supposed to be his job, but his uncle Kevon's. Why isn't Kevon here? because he's one of the few Lannisters who actually cares about his relatives. One of his sons is dead, and the other two are in mortal danger. This has Kevon so anxious and depressed that he can't do his job properly. Ironically, Tyrion can do the job because he's so much more isolated, all of his family relationships marked by distance. Except with Jaime. But even that is going to fall apart by the end of the book. And at that point, the grievances are all Tyrion has left. It's like he says on the show, I should have let Stannis kill you all. I put all that effort into defending you. I got cut up for it. I should let him just come on in and burn it all down if this is how it's going to be now. That's where he's at. It's a
1: great state of mind to be in, and you can see how all those uh, grievances are starting to conflate in his mind. Tyrion says Simon held a 12-string wood heart more deadly than a longsword. The songs aren't just about histories and stories, but are threats as well, as a way to disseminate information. Songs can be deadly for either the singer or the subject of the song, and you can see how expressing the sentiment starts building towards the reigns of Castamere and the importance it has to the Red Wedding. Like we said in Sansa 3, George is slowly giving you all the puzzle pieces to the Red Wedding in the second act of A Storm of Swords. Discussions of guests right here, the value of songs there. Simon is emboldened by Tyrion not acting on his earlier threats, something we discussed over and over in the series. There needs to be some teeth to them. It plays on something that Damon says in episode 7 of House of the Dragon, you need a little bit of fear to rule, and that fear is in part due to the willingness to follow through on promises of violence. This chapter offers another instance where Essos and the East are an escape, or more specifically for Tyrion, a place to send away your problems if they are a problem at court. This again has parallels to episode 7 of House of the Dragon where Laenor is shipped away, but in a more kindly manner and with his lover Carl.
0: One bit I do like about this scene is that Simon has no idea how close he came to getting away with this. Tyrion went into this scene planning to bribe the singer and smuggle him overseas. Not a bad deal, honestly. Simon got too greedy, but as you say, he's also taking advantage of Tyrion's generosity so far. Simon says that a singer's life is not without peril, referring to the possibility that one of the other singers could be... accidentally, probably not, accidentally injured to make room for him... But he's the one in peril and he doesn't know it until it's too late. Simon thinks he's dealing with someone like Tyrion's grandpa Tytos or Viserys on House of the Dragon, someone who is so desperate to be liked and so unwilling to stick to their guns that you can basically walk all over them. But Tyrion is Tywin writ small. He's only been holding back for Shae's sake and now Simon is actively threatening Shay's well-being along with Tyrion.
1: Yeah, I like that bit about Simon saying that a singer's life is now without peril because singers, honestly, do not do well in A Song of Ice and Fire. No. Just think about you the Blue
0: Bard or Marillion. Marillion.
1: Even uh, possibly if Ramsey can be believed, uh, Mance as Bale the Bard is not doing so hot right now, and as we'll not see with him Simon well. himself. <laughs> Good point. It makes,
0: me, it makes me worry for Thomas 7s I'll just say that much. Oh, no. We love Tom. I know, right? He's, he's, he might be the most likable one, honestly. <laughs>
1: We get Simon's song here about Hands of Cold, a sample at least, a verse and a bit of refrain, but not the whole song, which Simon hangs over Tyrion's head as a threat. The song ostensibly, nay definitely, is about Shay, Tyrion's secret treasure, his shame and his bliss. The line about a chain and a keep have some double meaning. The chain could refer to Tyrion's gambit at the Blackwater, or just the gold chain that that will be used to strangle Shay by book's end. The Keep probably literally refers to the Red Keep, but Tyrion earlier this book asked for Casterly Rock, which Tywin refused him in part because he won't see his castle turned into Tyrion's sex worker pleasure house. The funny thing is, Secret Treasure, his shame and bliss, could apply equally to Tywin's relationship with sex workers, noting that Shay will end up in his bed by the end.
0: Yeah, this song is basically the one thing Simon does of lasting importance to the story. As you were saying, he's weaponizing his talents, threatening to unleash the power of gossip and propaganda. Songs have a tricky relationship with the truth. They can be used to cover up ugly realities, and that's often how they're used in Sansa's story. Think of Butterbump's howling the bear in the maiden fair at the top of his lungs so Sansa can whisper the truth about Joffrey. Or Marillion singing to drown out Sansa's screams as Lysa threatens to throw her out the moon door. But songs can also be used to expose the truth, which is what Simon is threatening to do here. It's interesting how cynical George is about this role. He tends not to present singers as speaking truth to power in any kind of radical, admirable way. Instead, we get Thomas Sevens making fun of Edmure's whiskey dick, or Simon threatening to expose Tyrion's sex life. It's not about the crimes of the powerful. It's about their scandals, their personal embarrassments, because the singers know that tabloid angle is what the people want to hear. And there's a meta quality to this, in that George is asking us to consider how he frames things. We'll see this again at the Purple Wedding itself, in which the Stingers rewrite the history of the Blackwater to turn Stannis into a cackling sadist like Joffrey, and turn Renly into a penitent ghost who came back to life to help out the Lannisters. Which, as Tyrion points out, no, Renly never repented for anything in his life. He would never do that. Perspective is everything, and politics is like storytelling, in terms of creating a narrative and working to fit everything into it. And yeah, I love coming back to this and realizing that Simon is also describing Tywin and doesn't even know it. That just proves how much the meaning of a song, or a story, is shaped by the perspective of the audience. What you bring to the table, like a Rorschach plot. The romantic notion that a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss ties back into Eamon's big monologue to John in book one, about how honor and duty are abstract when set next to love. But Tyrion isn't going to run off with his lady love, leave politics behind like Duncan and Jenny. He tried that with Tysha. We saw how that ended. All he can do is try to reconcile the two, the human
1: heart and the Game of Thrones. Ultimately, he can't. Simon threatens to spread the song if he's not invited to the wedding, essentially blackmail, but Tyrion knows this might be the singer overplaying his hand. His father won't even give him audience, and Cersei is more likely to take this information and then immediately disappear Simon altogether. The real threat would be the word spreading amongst the people of King's Landing, which is what Tyrion has a plan for. Simon, again, not a particularly good villain, is a low-level boss battle for Tyrion at this point. Tell him what he wants to hear, but then have Bronn kill him, possibly boil him, mash him, turn him into a stew.
0: As you were saying earlier, uh, this is definitely one of the weaker parts of the story as a whole. The the dialogue in this scene is just so painfully on the nose. There's no subtext. They're just kind of like Tyrion is just thinking through the meaning of everything he's saying. And Simon is just being so blunt, which I know is on purpose. But it's still it's just not that exciting to read. You compare it to someone like uh, Roose Bolton, where like everything he says has like triple meanings. There's just none of that here. And it goes on just for longer than it should. The aftermath with Bronn, though, that does serve the purpose of showing us how ruthless Tyrion can be. He is ostensibly committing murder on Shae's behalf, but later in the book, he murders Shae himself. What's really at stake for Tyrion isn't her safety, but his own pride. The fragile sense of self-worth he's built up that is going to be shattered
1: all over again. Back at the Red Keep, we get the return of a minor character from A Game of Thrones, Tobo Mott, who reworks Ice into two Valyrian swords for Tywin. This raises the question on whether any of this skill or knowledge was passed down to Gendry, and if that will come up at all in the winds of spring. Tywin's interest in scabbards is very interesting to me. Can't just be the most dope swords of all time, but their sheets need to be exquisite too. This is how you project power. Sometimes it's about how you carry a big stick. And this itself is a literal arms race. Stannis has a magic sword, so should Joffrey. A king with a magical sword creates a compelling narrative of heroism and ordained right to rule, the shadow on the wall, the floppy years for the king of rabbits.
0: Now keep in mind that earlier in the book, Tywin said that Stannis' son had set on the Blackwater. The Baratheon cause is done, we can all move on. But here we see something I'm going to talk about at greater length later in Storm of Swords. Stannis remains a political threat even as he looks doomed in military terms. Just by staying alive, Stannis offers a potential out to anyone who hates the Lannisters. And as we've already seen in this chapter, that's a lot of people. We'll see this play out in the North come a dance with dragons. As Tywin himself admits later in the book, this is Stannis Baratheon. He will fight to the bitter end, and then some. It ain't over until it's over. So in the meantime, Tywin has to work to keep Stannis on the ropes. A lot of that, as you say, has to do with symbolism. Part of being in charge is looking like you're in charge. The trappings of power. And this is actually something Stannis has always notoriously struggled with, especially relative to his brothers. Robert was muscled like a maiden's fantasy. Stannis looks like a walking corpse. He's the Jack Skellington of Westeros. And then there's Renly, who mastered the image of power so strongly that it outlived him. The sight of his armor is what defeated Stannis at the Blackwater. Stannis's tent is dull, his clothes are plain, he's got that middle child scowl on his face, his idea of a wild knight is drinking salt water... He looks like the second-in-command he's always been. The only colorful thing about him, the only part of his brand that says I'm in charge, is Lightbringer. And even that's fake, as Maester Eamon says. But it's a potent symbol. A glowing, fiery sword like a star fallen to earth. A little piece of godhead. It's basically a lightsaber, and it makes for a good story. That matters, so Tywin has to counter it somehow. Joffrey gets his own shiny sword. But the sticking point there is always going to be Joffrey himself. Tyrion's right that it's too much sword for him. That's a polite way of putting it. Tywin can tell himself that Joff will grow into it all he wants, but look at the first thing Joffrey does with his new toy. He cuts the book Tyrion gives him into pieces, one of the most hilariously blunt metaphors in the whole story. Tywin is able to overlook Joffrey's behavior until the bratty little fucker directly defies him, right after the Red Wedding. Tywin, after all, is very good at not noticing things he doesn't want to notice. Just look at Joffrey's parents. And anyway, I would bet Tywin is thinking less
1: about Joffrey in this moment than he is about the swords themselves. This chapter offers us some of our deepest dives into Valyrian steel lore to date, both in the Seven Kingdoms and as it pertains to House Lannister specifically. We learn that there are some 200 Valyrian steel weapons in Westeros, which will be probably relevant when the Long Night finally comes. In terms of House Lannister, we learn they once possessed the ancestral blade Brightroar, last wielded by Tommen II, King of the Rock, last seen traveling to Valy- Valyria in search of treasures. Tyrion's own uncle, Garian—do you say Garian or Garian?
0: <laughs> I'm so bad at pronunciations. I honestly switch without even thinking about it. Never trust me when it comes to name pronunciations, because I'm even I'm even worse than Roy Dotrice in that regard. <laughs> Tyrion's
1: own uncle, Garian or Jerry, who gets no mentioned twice this chapter, went in search of Brightroar about 8 years ago, never to be seen again either. The lack of Valyrian steel has chapped Tywin Lannister over the years, and he approaches many an impoverished house to buy their swords off them. You gotta imagine these minor lords turned down life-changing, generational wealth in order to hold on to these weapons. Tywin asked Tabo Mott for a crimson coloring to the blade. The armorer did what he could, but Valyrian steel is stubborn. These old swords remember, so what he forges is something distinct from all other swords. It's a blending of the old and new. Some have postulated that the splitting of Ned Stark's sword into two may run parallel to Game of Thrones, if the show is any indication. Sansa and Bran governing the two halves of Westeros, possibly even physically divided by the end of things a way to pay off Ned Stark's legacy, and you could even imagine a scenario where these two swords themselves are used to defend King Bran and Queen Sansa if it comes to pass. I think that's why the line, these old swords remember, sticks with me, much like the North remembers.
0: This is my favorite part of the chapter because of how effectively George uses these swords to pry open Tywin's psychology and give us a look inside, give us a look at how he works despite him not being a POV character. Even before we learn that they're Valyrian steel, the scene starts with Tyrion overhearing Thabo Mott describe the scabbards. As you were saying, Tywin is leaving nothing to chance here. He's gotta stamp that Lannister brand on every inch of these things. Cherry wood and red leather, golden lion head studs with rubies for eyes. Has to be rubies, Tywin says. Garnets? What are we, peasants? Rubies have the fire. The fire, again, Lightbringer is the standard Tywin is trying to match. As usual, Tywin is desperately overcompensating, so much so that his performance of power can easily become a weakness more than a strength. Remember, Stannis' claim against Joffrey is that he's all Lannister and no Baratheon. Giving him a sword all done up in Lannister colors only helps that argument along. For all that Tywin said Cersei had to wed and breed to counter Stannis' disgusting slander about the Twincest, Grandpa Lannister isn't exactly helping sell the image of Joff as Robert's heir. Pride is at the heart of this. Of course, they're lions. For all that Tywin positions himself as a pragmatic administrator, it's all in service of his ego, not necessarily what's best for the family unit as a whole. He rode into the throne room on his horse after the Battle of Blackwater because Tywin is driven at all times to silence the laughter aimed at his father. Tywin will do anything to be feared. That's why he's sporting a sword-sized erection over finally getting his hands on Valyrian steel. They're the shiniest, deadliest swords around. They're markers of sophistication and wealth as well as violence. And they're all that's left of old Valyria. Other than Danny's dragons, of course. Symbols of authority don't get much more powerful than that. Which is why it's always pissed off Tywin that the Lannisters don't have one. Not only that, but the one they did have was pissed away when a Lannister king took it on a doomed quest to Valyria. Not only that, but Tywin's brother failed to retrieve the sword during his own doomed quest to Valyria. Such a nice family tradition this turned out to be. That cuts right to the core of Tywin's humiliation. His fear that he and his family are a subject of mockery even as they climb the heights of power. It doesn't matter how much money he has, nor how many titles. Smaller and poorer houses than his have those swords and refuse to sell them. This, Tyrion thinks, is in spite of the fact that those same lords would be overjoyed to give away their daughters to House Lannister. As we'll see later in the scene regarding Sansa, women are seen as currency, a medium of exchange. And not only that, but a less valuable currency than these big, shiny steel dicks. Again, the swords are symbols. It's not even about actually using them. It's about having them, displaying them, especially to people who don't have them. No matter what's happening, those smaller lords can look up above their mantles, see that sword hanging there, and tell themselves, well, even Tywin Lannister doesn't have one of those. Without one, part of Tywin worries that he's faking it, that the image of House Lannister he's working so hard to create is hollow. Now he's got one. Actually, he's got two. Two dicks. Take that, you (laughs) one-dick losers. But even this sign of Lannister triumph contains within it the seed of their doom. Tyrion is smart enough to wonder, where the hell dad got the steel? There's a finite amount of Valyrian steel in the world, because they're not making more in Valyria these days. And this is one of George's signature threefold revelation moves, as one of his editors called it. We get the setup here. Tywin has Valyrian steel, we don't know from where. Then Sansa gives us a big hint at the Purple Wedding, when she sees that Illyn Payne is no longer wielding ice. What sword is that? She asks, what has Sir Illyn done with my father's sword? Finally, Jamie spells it out for us along with Brienne. When Ned Stark died, his great sword was given to the King's Justice. But my father felt that such a fine blade was wasted on a mere headsman. He gave Sir Ilan a new sword and had ice melted down and reforged. There was enough metal for two new blades. It's a great reveal because we have enough to figure it out right here from the start if we're really paying attention. After all, the only Valyrian steel sword that's been in King's Landing lately is ice. That's the foundation of Tywin's victory. That's the source of the symbol of his triumph, the murder of Ned Stark, and the theft of his ancestral sword. That's why Tywin had it melted down and reforged, not only to give swords to both Joffrey and Jaime, but to make sure that it wasn't too obvious where the steel came from. There's just enough plausible deniability that people can pretend the steel just dropped out of the sky one day. For me, this sums up Tywin's character. Later in the book, Kevon will argue that Tywin has been no harder than he's had to be. He's been trying to make up for the sins of their father, who let their family reputation collapse with his weakness and generosity. The same incentives that led to Tywin's obsession with Valerian steel led to the harshness of his overall rule. He's doing it for a reason. What Kevon fails to consider is that Tywin's means undercut his ends. The regime he's building is infected by ultraviolence, full of open wounds, ready to rot. That's what the swords really represent. That's why, no matter what Tabo Mott does, he can't completely change the color of ice. It reminds me of Lady Macbeth, out-damned spot. It's also similar to the telltale heart, that the throb of the heartbeat that no one but the main character can hear. The swords remember. As you say, it's just like the North remembers. Even as Tywin turns the Stark sword into two Lannister swords, the steel itself won't let him cover up, the bloody foundation of his glorious golden regime in the show of course we got that incredible cold open to season four with we, we got to see the swords get melted down tywin was melting down ice in the wake of the red wedding timing is different here here it works as foreshadowing tywin doesn't have to hold ice back to potentially trade with rob as part of a peace deal because there will be no peace deal rob's fate is sealed they'll never get that sword back and yet We see throughout Feast and Dance that the Red Wedding has prevented a lasting peace, because so many Stark followers who might have otherwise bent the knee are determined to fight on specifically because of how brutal and unfair that defeat was. This is the blowback to Tywin's methods. He not only makes people fear him, he makes them hate him and his family. Tyrion's next chapter will reinforce that with the introduction of Ober and Martell. Cersei's POV chapters take that further, as she learned all too well from Tywin's violent pride, without ever considering what it might be for. Her paranoid jealousy is an end in itself, as far as she's concerned. Or just look at what's going on with Jaime. His hand was cut off by the war criminals Tywin brought over to Westeros, specifically to do war crimes. Now Jaime can't even use that sword. There's great dramatic irony here when Tywin says the larger sword is meant for Jaime, because we know he can't use it now. Oh wait, I'm sorry, Tywin doesn't say it's meant for Jaime. He says it's meant for his son, which is a middle finger shoved right into Tyrion's face. Tyrion, as he says, doesn't even get a dagger. He's left out of the patriarchal dick measuring contest, brought in only when useful. And while Tywin himself doesn't suffer for the Red Wedding, his cruelty to Tyrion does come around. Tywin thought the end justified the means. But the means have turned right around to eat away at his ends. All of the power and violence these swords represent will be turned inward, as Lannister fights Lannister to the ruin of
1: them all. Oh, that's such a great analysis of the two swords. Well done, sir. Well, thank you kindly. While not necessarily Valyrian Steel Chat, Tywin and Tyrion discuss daggers as well, since these swords would be far too large for Tyrion to wield. Robert had a plethora of daggers in his possession, though he barely glanced at them since he preferred his own hunting knife. This definitely feels like some minimal groundwork for the upcoming truth reveal about Joffrey taking the cat's paw dagger and using it to order an attempt on Bran's life, way back in A Game of Thrones. Your proof is in the dagger, Sir Roderick said. A a fine blade like that will not have gone unnoticed. That's from Cat 2 of A Game of Thrones, but as we find out, Robert has such a big dagger collection that it's missing did go unnoticed. All throughout the chapter, the ongoing betting situation of Sansa Stark lingers in the back of Tyrion's mind, tormenting him. Or maybe it's just all the laughing and gossiping behind his back that's tormenting him. Either way, it has become a matter of public knowledge that he has yet to consummate his marriage to the young daughter of Winterfell, and everyone is laughing, everyone except his lady wife part of me wonders though. Are the stable boys and servants snickering specifically because of the Sansa stuff? Or just, you know, for the myriad of other reasons that people snigger at Tyrion for anyway? Or the fact that he's been removed his hand, removed from the tower of the hand, and had one nose removed from his face? I'm not trying to make fun here, but I do think we are seeing all of the resentment in Tyrion, all the slights against him, real or perceived, starting to form into one collective pool, one that will overflow and precipitate his outburst when put on trial for Joffrey's murder.
0: Hmm, slights real or perceived that lead to an outburst of resentment and rage, why does that sound so familiar? Oh right, of course, that's Tywin too. Tywin has molded Tyrion in his own image. That which Tywin does to avoid humiliation has rebounded to humiliate Tyrion in turn. So they've developed similar defense mechanisms, similar ways of looking at other people and interpreting what they see.
1: I do think Tyrion is also struggling with this change in station at the Red Keep. As acting Hand, all information flowed through him. Varys first came to him, and he was always in the know. But now he's outside the innermost circle of knowing. How Shay knew about his betrothal before he could even tell her. Shay, for her part, who only appears in the flashback before his wedding, seems fairly nonplussed about this whole arrangement. You'll do your duty by her and then come back to me. A sentiment we see expressed a fair amount in House of the Dragon. And I totally get Tyrion's frustration at this. While he doesn't wish Shay harm, he does wish she was hurt by this arrangement, that she would be sad to have to share her lion. But Tyrion bitterly acknowledges he's a fool to assume it would be anything but the transactional nature that has defined their relationship thus far.
0: Yeah, this is a trap Tyrion has set for himself. He paid Shay for the girlfriend experience. He laid that out clearly in book one, that he was paying her not only for sex, but also to rub his shoulders, laugh at his jokes, act like she chose to be here. Having done that, he fell for the act he paid for, part of him treating her affections as genuine and thinking that, as he loves her, she has an obligation to love him. The irony is that Shay is the one describing the situation honestly. Tyrion's job is to get Sansa pregnant, after which, he can return to Shay. But that's too brutal a narrative for Tyrion to feel comfortable with, because not only does he have feelings
1: for Shay, he's starting to develop them for Sansa. It's funny watching Tyrion's thoughts change over the course of this chapter. At the start, he admits to himself that he does want her, woman or child or somewhere in between. But the minute his father demands he bet her, she is for sure a child, and he refuses. Not in principled respect for Sansa's autonomy, but in principled spite of his own father.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great catch. I never thought about that before. And I think that's very realistic. That's something that happens with issues much less fraught than child brides. I might be conflicted about something, but if someone I can't stand argues for one side, you bet your ass I'm arguing for the other. For Tyrion, if Tywin believes something, it's probably wrong. Which is a pretty good rule of thumb, honestly. The problem is that Tyrion is not so certain on the inside. It's a complex knot of emotions in there. Part of it, as he told Sansa, is genuine lust for her. And telling himself how young she is does not seem to do the trick. Part of it is also a desire for Winterfell. A place of his own, far away from his father and sister and his nephew twice over. And part of it is also that Tyrion is deeply lonely. So much so that he doesn't always seem to realize it. He wants someone to talk to. He wants Sansa to bring him her fears and desires so he can be someone trusted by someone else. Tyrion's life is lacking in love. He's starved of love and he has love to give but doesn't know what to do with it. Love is what he had with Taisha. And even that was false, or so he thinks. Now Tyrion is convinced that he can't have love, in the same way he can't be big and strong. They're linked for him. His size makes him unworthy of love. Part of him recognizes that really, what prevents Sansa from reaching out to him is the fact that he's a Lannister. That would be true even if he was as tall as Jaime, and there's nothing he can do about that. So they're locked together in torment, forced to pantomime intimacy, and Sansa can't even honestly directly hate him. She's using courtesy as her armor. And while this doesn't directly contribute to how Tyrion's arc turns out in this book, it erodes any sense of security he could possibly have, making it all the easier to turn against his family at the end of the book. As he says, this was the wife they had given him for all his life, and she hates him.
1: I was thinking the most relatable aspect of doing something or not doing something out of spite has to be all the times I get a recommendation for a new Netflix show. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm never going to watch Ozarks or Shits Creek, mostly just because people keep recommending it to me. I know exactly what you mean. Yep. <laughs> Tywin, in his discussions with Tyrion, seems very certain about future events, almost too certain. He's crafted a new sword for Jamie because doubtless he was on his way back right then and there, and of course the greatest knight in the kingdoms will be able to complete that quest. He's right of course, but the greatest knight may be Brienne who returns Jaime to King's Landing. He's also very sure that Sansa is going to have the best claim in the north, that Rob Stark's campaign is doomed. He literally says, once her brother is dead. At first read, this could just be the hubris of Tywin, and to be fair to the hand he's not wrong that the military situation for the North looks bleak following the Blackwater and Karstark defections. But coming back, we already know the machinations for the Red Wedding are underway. You can imagine Tywin is almost giddy at the prospect under his stone-cold facade. Tywin is also sure that J.R. Mormont is dead from his Ranging Beyond the Wall, which isn't an example of Tywin the All-Knowing, but rather some clever foreshadowing for Sam 2, which we will discuss next time he issues a commendation for Jano Slint for the likely upcoming election at the Wall. Tywin then lectures Tyrion on his two favorite things, money and sex, which really, no son wants to hear that lecture from their dad, but especially so in this case. Tyrion speaks to the high cost of repairing the waterfront of King's Landing, but Tywin is unconcerned with Tyrion's accountancy dilemmas. You'll either find the coin, or I'll find someone who can. Tyrion is already struggling to stay afloat in the ever-turning tide of King's Landing politics, losing his place at the small council would truly leave him with nothing. As he says, if you shit Goldfather, better start pooping.
0: Grab a roll of toilet paper and do your duty, in either sense of the word. George is working overtime to undercut Tyrion's reputation as a sensible administrator here. He's not wrong about the incentive to perform power, using the royal wedding as a vessel to show off Lannister wealth and splendor. Once again, though, there is a disconnect between ends and means. Tywin doesn't care how it gets paid for, just that it does. We saw that earlier when he handed off Thabo Mott to his steward to get paid. Now, of course, leaders aren't capable of knowing everything that's happening, and micromanaging can be just as bad. But Tywin isn't listening to Tyrion, who is telling him not just that times are tight, but that Littlefinger has basically rigged the economy to explode. Tywin says the crown's incomes have grown tenfold under Robert, Where did he get that information? From Littlefinger's account books. Those books are cooked, as Tyrion will later discover. Littlefinger has been spending money as quickly as it's been coming in, maybe more so, and it's much harder to track his expenditures than it is the revenue. At least Tyrion tries to figure it out. Tywin didn't, because even though his power is founded on wealth, actually dealing with money is beneath him, which is exactly what Littlefinger has been counting on. No one actually knows how finance works except him. No one can catch him because they can't really conceive of what it is he's doing. As it stands, Tyrion says, they can barely keep up with the interest on Littlefinger's debts. How can they pay for the wedding and a new gate on top of that? The great irony here is that one of the major creditors of the crown is right here in this room. It's Tywin himself. Why doesn't he just forgive the crown's debt to House Lannister? Out of the question, Tywin says. We have to keep paying interest to me. Seems like kind of a conflict of interest, a reminder that what's good for the Crown and what's good for the Rock aren't always the same thing, even as the Lannisters act as the de facto royal family of Westeros. Tyrion is caught in this absurd situation, just a farce, in which none of the moves he could make are available to him, and he'll be held responsible regardless because every line of authority leads him back to Dad. This isn't Tywin delegating and giving Tyrion room to prove himself. This is Tywin wanting the impossible and making that Tyrion's problem. He's a manager whose primary area of expertise is avoiding responsibility.
1: That's such a great call on Littlefinger's intentionality with the books here. I think an honest critique that can be leveled against... The modern day, quote unquote, economy is the very Byzantine nature of it. When you're using all these indicators and numbers and all sorts of things that aren't how much money do people have in their bank accounts? Do they have a home? Do they have material needs? It's no, it's some random S&P 500. And we're trying to peg wealth to that. And it becomes difficult to unravel unless you're the one who's actually constructing that system. And I think those people are counting on people outside of that system to just kind of accept what is there and not question it too hard. Tyrion must also find the champagne room with Sansa as Tywin transitions the conversation over to sex. His plans to reclaim the kingdoms under the banner of House Lannister depend on it, and Tyrion must do his duty. He doesn't care how, he just needs it done now. And This
0: is another one of those scenes that reads totally differently when you come back knowing that Tywin wound up sleeping with Shay. Obviously Tywin's regulation of his son's sex life is invasive regardless of what Tywin himself gets up to in bed, It's the same dynamic we saw during the wedding itself. While Sansa is definitely the primary victim here, Tyrion's own desires don't really mean anything to Tywin either. He sees his son purely as a political tool, a key to unlock the North once the Red Wedding is done, and Roose Bolton is no longer needed. But Tywin's comments about Tyrion's delicacy, regarding Sansa, as he puts it, take on a whole new meaning on Reread. Much as he scorns Tyrion for sleeping with sex workers, Tywin does the same thing. So even as he controls Tyrion's sexuality, he covers up his own. He's so frustrated with Tyrion in part because he's so frustrated with himself for having the same lusts as the father who disappointed him so much. It's a fucked up feedback loop that leads to Tywin discounting any possible reason Tyrion could have for holding back on sex with Sansa. By crushing out any hint of emotion, Tywin reduces sex to a pragmatic funneling of animal desires for political ends. Tyrion's sex with Tysha was the wrong kind. That they were genuinely in love with each other was immaterial to Tywin. Tyrion's sex with Sansa would be the right kind, so who cares what you feel about each other? This is part of why the sight of Shay in Tywin's bed breaks Tyrion apart. It's confirmation that his father wasn't actually above it all. He only pretended to be, and he enforced
1: that lie on his children like it was the truth. Tyrion is perhaps a bit too preoccupied with how Tywin knows he's not betting his lady wife, but how Tywin came about that information is not that important. If you don't trust Sansa's handmaidens, then just pick new ones. I don't care about your sibling's spat; just impregnate her and be done with it. It's a minor thing, but I think this is one of the part of the Game of Thrones that a lot of our players forget. You can just make your own appointments. Ned Stark may have inherited the Hand of the King role, but he didn't necessarily have to inherit the small council as it was. These moves may have been hard to make, especially after Littlefinger promised to help him. But dismissing potential enemies and filling the council with allies is one of the ways in which Tyrion ruled his hand moderately well, and it's something we are seeing take place in House of the Dragon. Allison was worried a few episodes ago that the small council was unfairly partial to Rhaenyra, and part of her coup involves shoring up the small council around her by the time King Viserys passes, which includes getting Hand of the King Otto Hightower back, as well as guys like Jasper Wilde and Tywin Lannister. Appointments are key! even in our own world, which I think anyone finally tuned into American politics is aware of the Supreme Court, but there are so many appointments and approvals for smaller roles that just the same shape our political reality, say like handmaidens in the Red Keep. One example is Louis DeJoy, a Trump creature through and through, who has remained at the head of the post office into the Biden years. He was only there to perform the right-wing agenda of privatize and slow down the governmental or public process of mail delivery, which in turn affected mail-in ballots. There's no reason for this man to still be in this position. One of Tyrion's little satisfactions as life goes down the privy is that his sweet sister is stuck in the same chains as he, so he asks after Cersei's pending nuptials, which are apparently no longer pending. Despite being init- initially amenable, Mace Tyrell has refused the match to Willis Tyrell, likely at the behest of Lady Olena. Cersei is old and broken, and simply will not do. Which you gotta think pisses off Tywin, which is good. The Queen mustn't know, however. This private slight against House Lannister cannot leave the room. What slight, Tyrion says as they bounce to the next topic.
0: Like I've said before, I really enjoy the Tyrion-Cersei relationship. I think it's this great mix of funny and sad. Like, look at how much delight they're taking in each other's problems. It's funny because you get to watch generally cynical, alienated people actually enjoy themselves. It's sad because that's the only way they can enjoy themselves anymore. All it takes to temporarily lift Tyrion out of his shitty day is the prospect that someone, somewhere, is making fun of Cersei. <laughs> it doesn't hurt that his father was humiliated in the process. Again, the violence turns inward. The Lannisters see each other as either extensions of themselves or as enemies. There's no healthy respect. No real love. It's also another example of the layers unlocked on Reread. Both Oberyn and Cersei talk about how Tywin offered Cersei's hand for Rhaegar, only for the Mad King to reject him. That was a major turning point for Tywin, as it felt like his service to Eris would always go unrewarded. According to Oberyn, that humiliation was why Tywin had Elia killed along with her children. Now it feels like it's happening again. Tywin, like Tyrion, is rarely more dangerous than when his old wounds are reopened. So it never happened. Whatever doesn't fit the narrative will be swept under
1: the rug. The chapter ends with news from the Wall, a raven delivered by Maester Pycelle, who, speaking of appointments, Tyrion is regretting not having appointed someone to take the Grand Maester's head. News from the Wall is bleak. The Great Ranging has failed, and the Lord Commander seems to have been lost beyond the Wall. With the Wildlings bearing down on it, the Night's Watch is petitioning any and all kings to come to their aid. Tywin is annoyed by appeals to all five kings, and in retrospect, it's perfect that Bowen Marsh would address it to all five kings and not finely tune each raven to each king and not make it known that he's sending it to everyone else. Tywin only views the Watch as something that can and should serve the crown, as opposed to the realm. What the Night's Watch needs is one of their own in charge, who would do as commanded by the Lannisters. The popular candidates in a situation like this are the commanders of the other Night's Watch castles, the Shadow Tower and East Watch by the sea. But the former is held by a Malister, a River Lord, and the latter a Bastard of the Iron Islands, both of kingdoms in open rebellion against the Crown and the Lannisters. Tyrion wants to kill the Jano Slint idea, saying he's for sale to anyone with gold, which Tywin views as a good thing, this is a point in favor of House Lannister. So long as people are loyal to gold, he can use that to his ends. What we are seeing here is Tyrion's good political maneuvering from his time as hand becoming ash in his mouth Mouth once Tywin takes control. Ty- Tyrion, this entire book, is struggling with the fact that all his deeds are either being undone or the credit is being given to others, like say Tywin winning the battle, and all he's left with is the blame, like he will be at the Purple Wedding. I think it's poignant that the chapter starts with the people of King's Landing looking viciously at Tyrion, because to them, he's the one who caused all the bad shit to happen in the previous book. Tyrion should have killed Pycelle, and Slint too, just like he did Deem, and soon will do to Simon Silvertongue. And eventually, in the book's end, Tywin Lannister as well. See, Dad? He's learning.
0: (laughs) He learns slowly, but he learns. He gets there by the end. And even more than the financial fuckery earlier... This is where George really peels back the performance and shows us that Tywin, far from a genius administrator, is an ignorant snob who thinks only of his own power. His first response to Bowen Marsh's warning about Mance Raider is to declare that the lands beyond the Wall cannot support large populations. It has the air of something he's heard elsewhere and is repeating without really thinking about it, a mantra of the conventional wisdom rooted in bullshit. After all, how the hell would Tywin know what conditions are like beyond the Wall? As far as we know, he's never been north of the Neck. He's certainly not friendly enough with the Starks to exchange information, and as we see in this chapter, he has nothing but scorn for the Night's Watch, making it unlikely that he's in regular contact with them. Remember how Paxter Redwine talked about the North as a whole as this barren wasteland unworthy of their concern? That's how Tywin feels about the Wall and everything north of it. It can't possibly hold any surprises, because that would mean it was worth paying attention to, and by definition, it's not. It reminds me of British colonial officers in India, or French ones in Vietnam. In more contemporary terms, it reminds me of American officials in Iraq, ensconcing themselves in Baghdad's green zone and making policy for the rest of the country without understanding it. Tywin's next reaction is to get all pissy about Marsh referring to the five kings when begging for help. Now, true, Marsh probably shouldn't have used a form letter for this one. It wouldn't have taken all that much longer to write out each king's name for each letter. But it's unbelievably petty and self-centered to seize on that detail in the context of this dire warning Marsh is sending. Tywin is less concerned about the safety of the realm than his own domination of it. The same would be true if he got word of the White Walkers, the far more dangerous army sweeping down from the north. And then there's Tywin's third response, to blackmail the Night's Watch into electing Geno Slint as Lord Commander if Mormont is indeed dead. Hard to imagine a more clear dereliction of duty. Slint brings nothing to the table. He's new to the Watch, as Tyrion says, and oh yeah, he's also an arrogant prick who ran the City Watch on bribery and murder. Why would the Watch vote for him? Because they're fucked if they don't, Tywin says, we'll never send another man to them again. And he says it, George writes, like Tyrion is quite the simpleton for not realizing that's the plan. This kind of power play is so ingrained in Tywin that he never stops to think otherwise. What about Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister, the other tower commanders in the watch? No good, says Tywin, because Pike is Ironborn and Malister is from the Riverlands. Enemy territory. The idea that they might be able to rise above that and run the watch effectively, that never even occurs to Tywin. He just assumes that everyone thinks like he does. In reality, Pike and Malister both care way more about class than geography, as Sam finds out during the election. But Tywin doesn't know that for the same reason he doesn't know the truth about the wildlings' numbers, because he refuses to learn. When Tyrion protests that Janos will sell himself to the highest bidder, Tywin says, yeah, that's the point, the highest bidder is us. And doesn't that just sum it all up? Everything points back to the power of money enforced by violence, even as Tywin detaches himself from the actual business of money and violence. It's worth noting how this scene runs both parallel and perpendicular to how this same letter is received on Dragonstone. Alistair Florent, when he was still Stannis' hand, dismissed the threat as airily as Tywin. And as Davos admits when he reads the letter, all the talk about Five Kings would irritate Stannis, just like it does Tywin. What makes the difference, of course, is Davos, getting Stannis to see he could rebuild his campaign on rescuing the Night's Watch. Although Stannis is also out of good options at that point, which is not true for Tywin here. Give Stannis this much credit. He has no love for Jano Slint, knowing him to be both incompetent and corrupt. That's one of my favorite bits, favorite Stannis bits, when Jano Slint is like flattering Stannis, saying, You saved us from the, from the savages. You're such a heroic king. And Stannis just looks at him and goes, I remember. I remember <laughs> when, when I was so close to getting to kill you and Robert stopped me. Keep talking. Keep talking and I will skin you alive. The Lannister regime has no such compunctions about Jano Slint. And once again, we see how Tyrion both breaks from Tywin's model and imitates it. On one hand, he raises sound objections to the plan, but once they're shot down, all Tyrion can think is that he should have had Janos killed, just like he's having Simon Silvertongue killed. This is a lesson he's learned, and that's the wrong lesson. Having Simon killed is about self-interest, full stop. There's no larger concern at work like there is with who gets to command the Night's Watch. The thin wages of doing the right thing gradually convince Tyrion to stop trying. Even as he despises his father, Tyrion follows him down to hell. It's the same thing that happens to John Connington, believing he should have been as harsh as Tywin if he wanted to win against Robert's Rebellion. And while Stannis does wind up making better decisions than Stannis regarding the Night's Watch, he too learned from Tywin's model, talking about how Tywin impressed him so much as a child he thought Tywin himself was the king. These are the only lessons Tywin has to teach. Sharp lessons. And both his family and his country keep on paying the price. So shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, Tyrion thinks in passing that Littlefinger has set sail to the Vale. That's why he's not hanging around in this chapter. In a later Tyrion chapter, he'll wonder whether Littlefinger has made it there yet. And those reminders make it all the more effective when George pulls the rug out, and we learn that Littlefinger never sailed to the Vale at all. He's been lurking just outside King's Landing, plotting with Dantos to seize Sansa. That's a great moment when Sansa goes... Wait a minute, you can't be here. <laughs> You're supposed to be in the Vale. This is well established. This is canon. And he's just like, Yeah, I never left. Tyrion also mentions Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister saying they're equally obvious choices to succeed the old bear as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. As we'll see in a later Sam chapter, the problem is they're too equally obvious. They kind of just get a certain amount of the vote and nothing more, which is why Sam has to invent John's candidacy, basically on the spot, to break the logjam before Janos Slint and his allies can do so. So George is definitely seeding that here, and I do love that Sam chapter with the extremely opposite personalities of Cotter, Pike, and Dennis Malister. He has to keep running back and forth between them both. That's great stuff.
1: Yeah, and I really like that we're being reminded of the two other commanders of the Night's Watch here, because we're going to lose the old bear in the next chapter. And the reader might just have forgotten or just not be thinking of these guys. But in setting up the later plot lines at the wall, it's kind of good to get them mentioned here as kind of political figures in Tywin's mind, so that when we get to those Sam chapters, we at least remember who these guys are and where they're from.
0: And one final bit of foreshadowing, Tyrion brings up his dad shitting gold, and this is George just reminding us in advance, reminding us about that that joke that people like to tell right before the big punchline of Tywin's death, the last line of that Tyrion chapter, Lord Tywin Lannister did not, in fact, shit gold. Yeah, nothing else to say about it. It's just, it's a great setup and delivery, but in the end. Great joke. So moving into theory and discussion, obviously, as we were saying, the big takeaway, the kind of most memorable part of this chapter is the reveal of these two new swords, the two Lannister swords that were forged out of the remains of ice. So that has led to much speculation about what's, what's going to be next for these swords. Where are they going to wind up on endgame? So what do you think? Where are uh, Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail, as they, are, as they are later known, where are they going to be later in the story?
1: I think Oathkeeper is maybe the easier one to pin down, because I mm-hmm. think we're just going to assume that remains with Brienne. And uh, Brienne is one of the few characters I think has a good shot of making it out of the story. Um, her being in the Kingsguard as the show depicted, or even perhaps part of Sansa's Queensguard up in the north. Um, these are all you know very good landing spots for her. And if she is, in fact, serving a Stark who's holding the throne, Ned's steel protecting them is obviously a very good thematic pick. Widow's Whale... I, I really don't have a great read on. I think the show was pretty smart putting it in Jamie's hands. It's just the most logical choice, especially with like this slimmed down ensemble of characters. Um, but I don't know how far Jamie's going to make it. I don't know if he's going to go north. Like I can see him fighting side by side with Brienne with the two swords. But Jamie's one of those characters I view as doomed. And I really wouldn't know who would pick it up from him unless it is, say, like, Podrick Payne. Or um, I don't know if anyone expects Sir Ilan Payne to come forth with Valeria and steal and be a hero in the end i guess that'd be a nice (laughs) twist given the end of a game of thrones but i really have no good read on it how about you
0: same because i feel like it's notable that widow's whale is smaller and lighter of the two swords and that, I mean, that makes me think of a character like Arya, but Arya is already overburdened with possible swords because she already has Needle. There's a possibility Dark Sister could come into her orbit, although I think that might end up with Mira Reed instead of the theories there. That's probably the one I favor most. Widow's Whale is one I'm, I'm honestly not sure about in terms of character and in terms of geography. Podrick is another possibility. That's of, of all the, the major swords in the story, the rest of them, I think there's strong candidates. Widow's Whale, I think, is... Is a dangling thread an open mystery maybe one of those gardening situations where george himself wasn't sure about where the sword was going to go but yeah oath keeper that's that's yeah that's not even a mystery that's i think that's sticking with brienne as soon as jamie gives her that sword that's that, that that moment just feels so right in the narrative like yes of course you're not you you can't use it you hate what it represents you're gonna hand it over to her she is that sword now and she has some great moments with it so i think yeah oath keeper with brienne to the very end and agreed i think brienne is a hand one of the handful of characters you know, Davos, Sam, Gilly, probably Bran as well. A couple of characters make it out. Uh, and I think Bran will have that sword with her probably probably to her dying day. So that is going to wrap us up for this episode on A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 4. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastASOIAF where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf.
1: And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as the Nuclear Bomb. We will be wrapping up our coverage of the Rings of Power over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. And then we will be diving back into the Two Towers. Excellent, excellent.
0: I'm excited for that. I uh, put out my most recent Lord of the Rings episode to all our $5 and above patrons, kicking off a book five, chapter eight of the Lord of the Rings, The Houses of Healing. So that's available for all our poor fellow and above patrons. Next week, I'm going to be jumping back into Star Wars, doing my next episode on Revenge of the Sith. Also for our $5 and above patrons over on patreon.com slash notacast ASOIAF. We will, of course, be continuing with our weekly episodes of House of the Dragon. A couple episodes left in the season. We'll be putting those out for everybody. And then next time- in A Song of Ice and Fire, Sam Tarly escapes the White Walkers, but only by hiding out at Craster's Keep.
1: Even in Westeros, Sam stands out for... He just he just can't catch a fucking break. He's had to deal with zombies so far, and now he has to deal with even worse, the remaining members of the Night's Watch. <laughs> Other people. <who> make that, <laughs> by the end of that chapter, Sam's like, can I go back and
0: hang out with the ice demons? At least, at least you knew what they were going to do. At least they were predictable. Well, he does get his wish, so... He d- it's very true. That's great. <laughs> That's a great structure of the Sam's chapters. You get this chapter about messy mundane awful humanity and then in his next chapter right back with the magic good stuff i really sam doesn't get many chapters in storm of swords but they're all they're all really good high batting average for the few times sam gets at bat in storm of swords so that's going to be great so thank you again for listening and we will see you next time for a storm of swords sam will too.